2: Well, as we all know, it is FOMC Statement and News Conference Day. We'll be hearing from Fed Chair Jay Powell later on. It's not as if we haven't been hearing from Fed members, (laughs) but he can only add to the dialogue or the conversation that's being had across the country. Let's bring in somebody else who will be speculating about this, and that is Robert Tipp, Managing Director, Chief Investment Strategist at PGIM. Robert, thanks for joining. So we'll get the statement at 2 p.m. What will be different from the last statement?
3: I think the Fed is going to take a breather here. I think they're going to, you know, continue to emphasize that they're there, that they're bringing online all of the aggressive programs that they've announced. Um, But I think they're at the bridging stage. Uh, You know, we've gone through uh, the the drop into the void, and uh, they sprung into action, and they instilled in the markets really the first phase, which was the leap of faith. Uh, But now we're on the other side. We're getting evidence of recovery. And uh, as may have been made clear by the payroll number, I mean, obviously it's early days, but you'd expect the first stages could see some pretty rapid growth. And so it's difficult for them to pour a lot of gas on and fire all remaining bullets uh, as the economy is is, um, really accelerating. I think they're going to plant some seeds here uh, and leave the door open and leave the impression that they definitely want to ensure this recovery and that they're not taking it for granted. But I think uh, fresh steps here in uh, programs kind of shock and awe, I think going to, those are going to be limited. So
1: Robert, you mentioned uh, that better than expected jobs report we got last week. How are you thinking about the economic recovery uh, for the remainder of the year going into next year now? Uh, How has that changed for you over the last several weeks?
3: Sure. Well, I think the expectation was, you know, based on the way this has played out in other places, that that you, you know, should expect to see a a rapid recovery in some ways in these uh, early stages. I mean, we had a sudden stoppage in activity, uh, everybody locking down and staying home, but you immediately saw sequential growth beginning uh, weeks ago in auto sales, in activity levels. And as that happens. You know you need service people on the ground coming back to work. So uh, I think that this is a much more difficult stage. The leap of faith stage, there was a lot of policy. There was a lot of value in the markets. Now you're looking at valuations in markets that are below average, uh, and you're at the evidence stage. And so I think you're, you're going to continue to get progress in markets, but you're going to get a lot more volatility, a lot more back and forth as people question whether this is going to be uh, fast enough in terms of growth to get companies to the other side, how long it's going to be sustained, and so on.
2: If we don't get more fiscal stimulus and unemployment benefits and the extra stimulus runs out in July, what happens, Robert?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're going to have to get some more stimulus. They're going to have to uh, keep that going to, to some extent um, because you can't have, uh, you know, a huge uh, swath of the population, you know, without income. And there's a, uh, you know, when you look at the, uh, the deciles in terms of uh, wealth, income, savings, and so on, there's very little wiggle room. Uh, for, uh, you know, broad spectrum of the population. And so I think that even uh, if you're getting millions of jobs created every month, uh, it, it's not going to be the majority of jobs getting recreated in the next few months. And so they're going to have to keep something going there.
1: So, Robert, where do you see value uh, in the fixed income markets? We've had, again, a, a nice rebound in risk assets. Where, we, where do you see value?
3: Yeah, let me answer that question and back and fill a little bit on the last one. Uh, So, you know, looking out over the long term, I think spread product is going to outperform. You're going to have to be very selective, though. Uh, You know, we're looking across pretty much all sectors, whether it's uh, high quality structured product, uh, European peripherals, hard currency and local emerging markets, IG, high yield corporates. There are good values in, in all of these areas. Um, But as legislation is worked on, as we get closer to the election and uh, we see more uh, of Biden and the competition uh, for leadership in in that race uh, and all the other things, geopolitics, trade wars, uh, you you have um, investors in many cases that may have been chased into a rally that they didn't believe in. And uh, you'll see you know, more days like today where it's not just one-way progress. You're going to get uh, backing and filling. I think over the long run, though, that's where the value is going to be, number one, is in spread product. I think, number two, there's going to be a lot of opportunities on the interest rate side. Because I think whether the Fed uh, really doubles up on their programs today or not, and I think that's unlikely. I think in the long run, you're still looking at a shift, a secular shift to lower rates. And the long-term forwards in the markets, frankly, right now, uh, don't really reflect that.
2: So
4: there's
3: still some value even left at the back end of the Treasury curve.
2: Robert, thank you. Back end of the Treasury curve and spread products. Much appreciated your time today. It is... Robert Tipp, Chief Investment Strategist at PGM, joining us there. And I do want to point out that the 10-year yield today is at 77 basis points. Just a little bit of a move after we got that CPI data negative month over month, down by 0.1%. Uh, the two ten spread at 59 basis points right now. Remember when we were worried about that going negative? Well, <laughs> That's the Fed right. <laughs> surely fixed that one. All right. And thanks once again to PGM's Robert Tipp. Always love chatting with him. It is time to check in with New Opinion now. We're joined by Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein on his latest uh, column to do with the elections coming up in a short five months from now. The column entitled Be Ready for a Long Election Night This Year. So, Jonathan, you say that administering the 2020 election would already be a challenge even if everyone acted in good faith, but there are many more challenges this year, including that we could actually be looking at a whole week. Just explain... If you can, what you mean by by that?
5: Well, what's happened is as more and more voters are doing early voting, doing vote by mail, doing other forms of absentee voting, it just takes longer to count the ballots. And that's been a trend that's happening over the last several elections. And it's going to be accelerated this year because we're expecting way more vote by mail this year. And so there's going to be a lot of states that only can count, you know, 60 percent or so of their ballots on election night. And so we need to expect that it's going to take days, maybe up to, you know, 10 days, 15 days to get a final result from some states, including some of the battleground states. So is it the
1: case that, you know, we're not going to see... Uh, the election called on election night that no matter what it's very likely that we won't have uh, a conclusion to the election for again up to maybe 10 days
5: it depends on how close the election is of course um there are there's a bunch of states that you know basically are still going to be able to call the state that uh, election night but um in some of the other states, including Pennsylvania and Arizona, which are both, you know, major battleground states expected to be this time, if those states turn out to um, be the, the margin of you know of victory, we're not going to know possibly for quite some time. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with this. This is planned. This is how it needs to be to get everybody to vote and to have an accurate count. So one of the important things for everybody to do in a, in a position to do so is to warn everyone in advance. This is going to happen. This is okay. This is not fraud. This is not questionable. There's nothing wrong with this. This is the best way to let everybody vote and get an accurate count.
2: And yet, Jonathan, why do I have premonitions of all sorts (laughs) of challenges and court cases and attorneys general being brought in?
5: Well, there's no. There's two things. One is legitimately, if there's a close election, both parties are going to fight for their rights, and that's you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Then on top of that, we have a president of the United States who, who alleged fraud without evidence in an election that he won. So we're sort of all expecting him to allege fraud no matter what happens, because that's what Donald Trump does. He claims fraud based on nothing. So, you know, it's, it's going to be – a there's a good chance it's going to be a mess – especially if it's a close race, it's going to be yeah, a mess, it's going to look ugly. And the best we can do is warn everybody, hey, this is what to expect.
2: I mean, Paul, just you know, stop there for one second and just yep. think how strange it is that you're putting effort into explaining to the public that fraud is not going to take place, but you have the president saying right. that fraud is taking place. How do right, you exactly. combat that?
1: <laughs> it's interesting, you know, it, Jonathan, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think the issue is here... Are, is the delay this election primarily driven by the write in votes the mail in votes that are resulting from the pandemic or is there anything else going on here
5: well a lot of states are just shifting more to um, mail in votes to begin with and states have different rules so that some states you can uh, the the deadline is to get a um to get the ballot in to get the ballot um you know, in the mail on election day. So it may take another day or two to be to arrive, and then they have to sort it, and, they have to count, and it takes a lot longer to count um, absentee votes and vote by mail because you have to certify it, you have to make sure it's a real... You can't just, you know, throw everything through the machine. So it takes longer. And then there's an additional complication, which is another thing we have to let people know, which is that the people who tend to vote at the last minute tend to be more Democratic than Republican. So we need to expect in most states, it's not, it's not consistent across all states, but it is true in both Pennsylvania and Arizona, we expect the election night count to be better for Republicans than the final result. And there's a good chance that Republicans may have the lead on election night, while experts who know, you know, who know how this works know that Democrats have a very good chance of overtaking that.
2: How will this affect how we should read polling on the way up to the election? Obviously, polling has not had a great record recently, anyway. But you know, presumably, there would be you know different polls this year, different types of of, of collecting data, and people reading them differently. And, and you would have thought, hopefully, better than the last couple of elections. Will it make a difference?
5: That's a great question. The polling, actually, last time around was better than people think. The national polls basically got it right. Some of the state polls were wrong. Um, There's no particular reason to think that absentee voting, vote by mail will really affect that. Pollsters have learned, you know, people now start voting in in early October. Um, It's more of a one month election that then takes a week to count than a one day election that takes one night to count. Um, so so there's actually sort of slippage on both sides. And pollsters have gotten better, have gotten pretty good at knowing that's happening and adjusting for it. So we may have polling errors, but it shouldn't really affect the count that much.
1: Jonathan Bernstein, thanks so much for joining us. Jonathan Bernstein, Bloomberg Opinion, columnists covering all things political. I think, uh, as you suggested, Vani, this is going to get kind of ugly as we kind of get up to this election and try to process the days after.
6: Yeah,
2: I mean, we're definitely five months away. But yesterday alone, you had Paul Tudor-Jones, you had Bruce Richards already talking about starting to look towards the election. And so, you know, when you have major investors like that doing it, you know, the rest of the country is. But of course, there's the conventions to get through first, Paul.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Jonathan said the, the, the key here is uh, uh, kind of education, letting people know that this is going to happen. But Jonathan's column was the, f- the first time I kind of kind of came up to this issue. So there's a lot more education that needs to be had going forward, but it'll be certainly an issue.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Great, Jared. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Market Drivers is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. For the sixth straight time, J.D. Power ranks Commonwealth number one in independent advisor satisfaction among financial investment firms. Visit Commonwealth.com. To learn more, looking at the markets here, as Greg was just mentioning, we're kind of kind of a mix. S and P down slightly, down down 150 points, but the Nasdaq is higher. To get a sense of what's really going on and how we should be thinking about these equity markets going forward in the face of this global pandemic, we welcome our good friend uh, Gina Martin Adams. She's an equity strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your sense here of kind of how you're viewing the markets here after this nice bounce off the lows that we've seen in the equity markets. How are you kind of taking a look at the next 12 months for the equity markets?
6: Yeah, so when we think about where equity markets are, the bounce in our view has been entirely driven by policy infusion, much lower rates for a longer period of time, a commitment by the Fed to at least double the size of the balance sheet and purchase many, many assets across the bond market spectrum has certainly elevated valuations in equities Um, But we've now effectively priced that policy infusion in. So we're waiting for our next like higher. And I do think that's why you're seeing the market sort of take a pause here, rotate back into some longer-term winners. And I do think we're in for a period of maybe a rockier climb as we move into more of a show-me market. And by that, I mean we're going to have to see the economic data continue to improve Maybe a little upward revision momentum emerge in the, earnings, uh, in the earnings expectation stream to really drive performance from here. So we've gone from policy-driven market to what's likely to be more of an economically and earnings-driven market uh, over the next several months, in our view.
2: Yeah, just as you talk about that, we're seeing the fangs higher today, which again shows the Nasdaq up two thirds of a percent while the other indices are lower. But Gina, not by very much. And if you say we're going back to the fundamentals, you know, what does an improvement look like? Because we're looking at seriously negative numbers, particularly for earnings next quarter.
6: We are, but the expectation is for that negativity to persist. And I think that's an important an important point to make. If you look at your average recovery following a recession lows, you typically get a 10% um, growth pace in EPS uh, following those lows and the year after those lows. So 10% is your average. We're baking in a 5% expectation in terms of our forecast for where the S&P 500 is most likely to go. The consensus expects only 1.5% growth. So I think this is an important thing to keep in mind is there's no implied expectation for recovery really in the earnings stream in terms of consensus expectations. I would argue the market is probably pricing in about 2% growth following our, our second quarter trough. So that's why we're so sensitive to what happens with the pace of economic growth and earnings recovery. Yes, the current economic numbers look bad, but they are getting less bad as long as they continue to get less bad and start to migrate to potentially growth we're more likely to see revision momentum revert higher, we're more likely to see earnings beat expectations, and that's going to keep the market most likely moving higher, albeit certainly not at the double-digit pace of uh, monthly growth that we've experienced most recently. It'll, be, it'll most likely be a rockier, rockier climb because it's driven more by improving earnings expectations and improving economic outlook, which by its very nature is much more diffi- a more difficult portion of the equity market climb than the pure valuation. Expansion-driven portion that we've
1: just been through. So, Gina, we've had the Fed kind of come out, you know, since the beginning of this pandemic and be, you know, quite aggressive, quite uh, forthright in kind of their views of how they need to stimulate uh, the market and, and add to liquidity in the market. Fiscal stimulus is kind of taking a back seat here. Is that does the market need to see another big round of fiscal stimulus here, or is that not a prerequisite for the support of this market right here?
6: I think it'll entirely depend upon the pace of economic recovery. I mean, I think we can all admit that we were very shocked by the pace of employment recovery recorded in the month of May, just on a couple of weeks of reopening to see that kind of employment growth. There's a lot of skepticism as to whether it will continue. But if it does continue into June, I think the fiscal bodies are going to really start to question how much... Spending they need to do how much stimulus they need to do at the same time you've got a lot of fear out there that we're going to have another reinfection wave that we're going to experience some you know sort of yep. um, greater shutdown come winter months and so I think that they want to reserve some firepower in the event that we do see some sort of reinfection going forward not to mention the fiscal budget is not exactly sanguine at this moment in time we right. certainly accumulated a tremendous fiscal uh, fiscal deficit so I think they're going to be somewhat conservative certainly follow the data. I think in certain cases, there's enough political momentum, such as the extension of uh, unemployment benefits to probably get something through. But we're unlikely to see a massive bazooka package like we saw in the spring, simply because we do appear to be pushing past the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And as long as we're going to continue to see some incremental improvement in economic growth, your case for extraordinary fiscal expenditure Um, in that kind of environment, it is diminished somewhat. And the equity market is not necessarily counting on it. You know, with one and a half percent growth forecast for earnings over the next 12 months, the equity market is essentially just saying, hey, we're going to have incremental improvement in the economy. I would say another fiscal package is um, likely to provide a big boost. Gina, very briefly, what do you make
2: of the distressed equity investing that we're seeing right now? Hurts, Chesapeake, JCPenney?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a risk tolerance move. I do think that what's happening in general is an improvement in risk tolerance. Investors are willing to go out the curve in terms of lower quality investments, higher volatility investments. That's very symptomatic of um, sort of recession lows, very consistent with experiences of the past um, I wouldn't call it necessarily taking a flyer, but certainly finding those, um, those potential opportunities where we've seen extraordinary dislocation and maybe some mispricing in the market is definitely the risk appetite of the day.
2: All right, Gina, thank you. I have to live there. Gina Martin-Adams, Morgan Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. Thank you for that. There's one CEO I would probably not want to be during these times, and that is an insurance company CEO. They are on the hook for so much, or at least they say they're not, but uh, those who are claiming they are uh, sometimes have a pretty good argument, or at least they think they do. Let's bring in somebody who knows both sides of the story and that is Matt Palazzola, who covers all of the insurers, particularly the property and casualty insurers for us at Bloomberg Intelligence. So Matt, the story for the insurers just keeps getting more and more complicated. We had the pandemic, we had events cancelled for that reason and then of course we had protests, some of which turned into riots. Just how on the hook are insurers for all of these events?
7: Yeah, um the combination of all these events will probably make for the worst insured loss year ever. Um, wow. There's a couple of distinctions to make when you're, you know, saying that. Typically, um, when you have a large event, which previously the, the most costly event was Hurricane Katrina in the United States, that's usually isolated to at least one geographic region. So, what's really distinguishing the pandemic uh, is the fact that it's impacting pretty much every major uh, large global city in the world Um, and that's what's going to contribute to this large loss.
1: All right so Matt can the insurance industry handle this?
7: Yeah for sure so the insurance industry is well capitalized. 2017 and 2018 were pretty bad years in the United States uh, for insured losses with a number of hurricanes adding up and even through that uh, insurance companies remained pretty well capitalized and I think The other important point is that if these losses are very geographically dispersed um, by region, they're going to be very very dispersed by company too. So it's going to be spread across the entire global industry. So I wouldn't have capital concerns for the entire industry some companies here and there could get into trouble,
2: though. Well, and of course, we should note that when it comes to, to that side of the equation, insurance companies are huge investors and with the Dow and NASDAQ and all those uh, indices at all-time highs, that part of their Balance sheet hasn't really been hurt like it might have been. But what about the other side? I mean, we had so many lobbying groups trying to get insurers to pay out money for things like rent or, you know, COVID-19 stoppages. And they just are not prepared to do so. They're going to fight it all the way. It it may go to, you know, a higher court or even the Supreme Court at some point. But what, what, what will happen with contract law? Will those contracts be changed post hoc?
7: Yeah, I don't think so, Vonnie. So uh, a number of states tried to essentially force insurance companies to retroactively pay uh, business interruption claims that specifically excluded viruses, and Those bills have seemed to have lost momentum um, in the various states, and none of them came into law. The industry would have fought that very hard, and like you said, it could have even been a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. I don't think that's going to happen retroactively. I do think going forward, there'll be a number of things we're um, already discussing, a global uh, or I should say United States pandemic fund where insurers would potentially Pay pandemic claims, but then could be reimbursed, kind of similar to what we have for terrorism right now. So I think the effects are going to be uh in the future more than they are uh changing contracts that already happened in the past.
1: So I mean Matt, how have these uh, big property and casualty insurance stocks how have they performed here in the market? So you're talking about some of the biggest losses ever. I can't imagine investors wanting to have anything to do with these things.
7: Yeah, I think So what happened initially was uh, the stocks took a big dip uh, in conjunction with the market. And in our published view was that uh, the stocks went down a lot more than what their exposure might be, even in uh, the worst year ever. Uh, They've since rebounded. And uh, as Vani was mentioning earlier, obviously these companies are big investors, and when a lot of industry participants are talking about this being the biggest loss ever. They are including uh, the investment impact, which is not typically included when we talk about this. So uh, there's a little bit of, I guess, you know, building up the the event maybe even bigger than it is. And what I would note is that several large insurers have already said that in the second quarter, They did see, and as we've seen with the market, a dramatic rebound in that. So I think that's going to be a a little bit of a limiting factor.
2: What about events? How how long will events be cancelled for? And, you know, out to when are insurance companies liable in the sense of, you know, when do people actually start booking things? I mean, are people booking things pre-pandemic for 2021, 2022, or is that like not even on the cards?
7: Yeah, it's not. The the. the these policies will typically be written on an annual basis. So stuff that may be happening in 2021, uh, those policies may not even be written yet. And if they are, they're certainly going to exclude um, viruses and pandemics. So, you know, what what we'll see now is the fallout of stuff for this year and maybe the first half of next year. And a lot of that's going to fall on the uh, European market, which writes a lot of that event cancellation insurance especially for these big events like wimbledon um you're not going to see u.s insurers taking a lot of that risk
4: mm.
1: so matt i mean have we seen these companies take some big uh, loan loss provisions or just uh, pr- you know kind of pr- pr- provisions for losses on their policies
7: that um yes i mean well so far i'd say the u.s companies uh have not the first quarter they didn't have huge losses uh chubb for instance it was a very low number, but they said, you know, we need to be prepared for the second, third quarter that we're going to have a, a lot higher of losses. So the biggest losses right now have been uh, in European companies and um, reinsurance companies, which is insurance for the insurance companies. So as of right now, it's it's still a little bit of a wait and see game. Where you know everyone's talking about the big losses out there. We do see the Europeans having them, but as far as the U.S., we, we still have to wait for the second and third quarter.
1: Hey Matt, thanks so much for joining us, we appreciate it. As always, Matthew Palazzola, senior analyst covering the property and casualty insurance business for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's got years of experience covering that space. And you know, interesting, even though it's going to be uh, the worst year ever in terms of losses for uh, the insurance companies, uh, A, they're uh, able to handle it from a financial perspective, and B, their stocks are actually uh, bouncing back off those lows, really finan- uh, fascinating.